Morning, friends. Hey, I'm not quite sure how I ended up in this place, but somehow in life, not only have I now owned one minivan, but now I've owned two. I know. We had to trade in the old one because it was falling apart, and we recently got a new-to-us minivan. But this one's loaded with features. It has, like, power windows, power locks, and everything. It's the whole nine yards. Now, the new feature on this one is the lane departure warning system. Oh, yes, the lane departure warning system. Sounds like you've heard of these. My wife called me a couple days after we got the van, and she said, Perry, why is the van yelling at me? So we had to look it up, and we noticed that, oh, yeah, this van, unlike the last one, wants us to keep it between the lines. <laughs> it's a great system, though, because if you're crossing a line that you should not cross, it just warns you, and then you just make a subtle adjustment and bring it back ever so gently back into the middle of the road. But what happens in life, not on the road, but in life, when we find that we're crossing lines, but we're not the ones driving. We don't have the power to bring ourselves back into the place that we want to be, but instead we're crossing lines and somebody else is driving. We're not sure who, but it's clear that we are not the ones in control. We're in Daniel chapter 3 this morning, and as we've seen so far in the first two chapters, we're, we're hearing about men who have made their way from Jerusalem to Babylon, but not of their own will. They've crossed a lot of lines because other people have led them there. They've crossed geographic lines, but they've crossed plenty of cultural lines as well. They've had their names changed. They surely are wearing different clothes, different wardrobe than they would have worn. They have different plans for their future now. They have different relationships, and their outlook on life is completely changed from what it was originally. These are men whose lives have changed dramatically as they've crossed lines, and that's what life is like for an exile. The Bible has a lot to say about living in exile. You see that you cross all kinds of lines, and we might think that as we're crossing those lines, the Bible would counsel us to resist, maybe to go ahead and try to escape from the pressure to be able to cross those lines. Maybe we should work against those who are oppressing us and leading us into exile, but instead the Bible says something really different. Jeremiah 29 is kind of the signature passage for the attitude, the mindset that an exile is supposed to have. Here's what it says. Jeremiah writing about this very situation in history, says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons, have daughters. Your family is going to grow. Just put down roots in these places. But then the kicker here is in verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. We're not called to resist or to fight against, but we're actually called to seek the blessing of the place around us. If you read the New Testament, you see that this theme is carried on. In 1 Peter, he addresses his letter to exiles in the dispersion who are scattered across the Roman Empire, specifically in the area of modern-day Turkey. The mindset of an exile is a mindset that we're called to adapt, called to adopt. It's a mindset where we say our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate hope, our ultimate witness is to God's kingdom, yet we live in a kingdom on this earth. 
And in the meantime, until God's kingdom comes, we seek the welfare of those around us. That's what we're called to do. But a life of exile is crossing line after line. But as we're going to see this morning in Daniel 3, there are some lines that we cannot cross. I'm going to have a lot of the text up on the screen, but not all of it. So I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open it. The first six verses that I'm about to read will not be on there, but the verse, the seventh will be. Okay, let's open. Daniel chapter 3. Here's what it says in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then here in verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that who? That King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Students, if you have a final term paper that you're preparing for and you have a high word count, let me just say, take some advice from this passage. It'll help you achieve that word count. Everything is repeated here that's important, that's emphasized, that we're supposed to draw our own attention to. If you're an empire like the Babylonian Empire and you've made a habit out of conquering other peoples, nations, and languages, you have a strong interest in trying to assimilate those peoples, nations, those languages into one cohesive unit. What better way to do that than to establish a social program that would require everyone to participate in the same kind of activity, hearing the same kind of music, looking at the same kind of imagery and all doing the same thing at the same time. Now, we're not told how much time has passed since the end of chapter two and into the start of chapter three. It could be years. But it sure seems like Nebuchadnezzar has something fresh in his mind with this golden image from chapter two. Remember back then that he had this dream of this imposing figure. And Nebuchadnezzar had asked what the interpretation of his dream was, but even before that had asked what his dream was in the first place. And the wise men were not able to tell him but Daniel was able to tell him with God's help. And Daniel said the king to the king, he said, the head of gold, O king, it's you. You are that head of gold on top of this imposing figure in his dream. So Nebuchadnezzar must have had that in his mind, and he decided he would do something even better. He would create his own real-life tall st statue, and he would make it from gold from top to bottom. We don't know whether this represents Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know whether this represents a god of Babylon. But there is one thing that is clear. It is an object to be worshipped. 
everyone is to bow down. And if we were in my minivan right now, we would be hearing all kinds of bells and whistles going off because we are about to cross a line we cannot cross. Back in Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And here's what the first two commandments say. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Nebuchadnezzar has established this program that calls for compliance. It calls for everyone to simply drop what they're doing when they hear the music, and it's so easy to comply with. It might even be a welcome break from hard work on a hot day. You can just stop what you're doing and fall down and worship. Does our culture ask us to do things like this? Does our culture have its own sense of compliance requiring certain things from us? I mean, we are a culture of individual freedoms. We have unprecedented freedoms in all of history. We can go our own way, and our culture encourages us to go our own way. Take the hot-button topic right now, the topic of human identity. We have thrown off the oppressive shackles of theology. We've thrown off the oppressive shackles even of biology. And we now have decided for ourselves by looking inside of ourselves based on our feelings, what our truest identity is. It's a quest for our own autonomy, a quest for us to decide our deepest identity. So surely we aren't all complying like Nebuchadnezzar is asking his culture to comply. Christopher Watkin is an author and professor and he writes this, he says about our culture, if I live in a society which every day finds a hundred subtle ways to send me the message, go your own way, and I determine to go my own way, then am I not in the same position as the conformist is in a society of conformity? If my culture is telling me, hey, figure it out for yourself, and I decide to figure it out for myself, am I not just conforming like every other culture? You have another quote here from Christopher Watkin quoting a sociologist named Robert Bell, and he says, the irony is that when modern people think we are most free, we're actually most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. For it's a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can but must make up our deepest beliefs and the isolation of our private selves. The situation looks very different than Daniel chapter 3 in our world today but we may not be so far removed in terms of the cultural pressure as we think. But Nebuchadnezzar's program was wildly successful based on the early returns. All of the people bowed down and worshiped, almost. Let's keep reading. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego, these men, O king, it's bad. It's really bad. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Chaldeans are a tribe. They're a tribe that rose up to power in the Babylonian Empire during this time in history. So they are insiders. If they had a bumper sticker, they would have the native bumper sticker on their cars. These are the ones who would look at the exiles coming in and they would not be pleased to see that these people from Jerusalem have come in and taken important government positions. They might be a little envious of that kind of success. And so they notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not participate in what Nebuchadnezzar has established. And they're here in the kindness of their hearts to report on the actions, the refusal to comply of these men from Jerusalem. Does our culture try to enforce universally our own compliance? Is there a pressure on us to do that kind of thing as well? One thing you might have noticed in our culture in recent years is that it's no longer okay to just agree to disagree, especially around this issue of identity. When it comes to identity now, we can't just determine to coexist with people who have different beliefs, different values, different thoughts. But now, we have to agree. We have to participate in the celebration of their self-determined identity. Carl Truman writes this. He's also a professor and author who says, there is an outward social dimension to my psychological well-being, and that demands that others acknowledge my inward psychological identity. I need you to celebrate along with me who I tell you I am. This is a, an issue that we see as we put all of this together that is a major issue in our culture. It was a major issue in Daniel's day and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's day. And the thing we can start to see out of this text is that in order to be winsome, remember that's what this series is about, living winsomely, sometimes we have to remain standing when everyone else is falling down. In the language of this passage, we have to remain standing when the music plays, when everyone else is falling down, to be winsome. But we should not be surprised if not everyone receives our actions as winsome. Let's keep going. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This furious rage of Nebuchadnezzar shows us that he, he agrees with the report of these certain Chaldeans, that this is a big problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not just random people from within the Babylonian empire, but these are, these are government officials who were promoted 
at the end of chapter 2. These are government officials who were, who were brought, brought into Nebuchadnezzar's government as some of the best and brightest from the land of Israel, from Jerusalem. These are not just any old people, but these are people who, if they are not following through, it's insubordination, it's disloyalty, and it's personal. But the kicker in all of it is this question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This question never gets asked if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had merely complied with Nebuchadnezzar's program. It never gets asked if they have not remained standing when everyone else was falling down. It never gets asked if they had merely crossed their fingers and said, I don't mean it, but I'm going to do it just to keep the peace. The only way this gets raised as an issue is because they were faithful to keep standing when everyone else was not. It's the central question, the central issue. Who is the God who is able to deliver out of my hands? So far, we've heard about their actions, but now we finally get to hear from them directly. Let's keep reading. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Do we just notice in these words, these replies, like we saw last week out of Daniel chapter 2, and now this week out of Daniel chapter 3, that Daniel and his companions here just have this poise. They have their, this confidence about them. In fact, it was brought up in chapter 2 verse 14 that these are men who have prudence and discretion. We see that same prudence and discretion on display here. Where does that come from in a moment like this? It's none other than God's grace in their lives. It's a supernatural thing. When your life is on the line, to be able to reply with such confidence, but what about such faith? Where does that faith come from? We can just say that as they were carried off into exile, they've had moment after moment of challenges to their faith. They may not have met all of those challenges the way that they needed to, or the way that they wanted to, but from what we can read about in this text, we see that they were faithful in smaller moments that surely prepared them for this bigger moment. They were faithful with the king's food in chapter 1. They were faithful to pray together in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar threatened to have all of the wise men murdered. And now here, they're, they're faithful to remain standing when everyone else is falling down. And now in this moment, their words are matching that faith. They've seen how God has delivered and answered their prayers, how God has been with them through it. But surely they even have knowledge of God's other great acts of faithfulness for his people. It's almost like they have in mind the words of Deuteronomy 4.20. When God had delivered up his people out of Egypt, which is described as the iron furnace. The furnace of Nebuchadnezzar is something that they face, but they know this is a God who specializes in delivering people out of furnaces. 
And this is a God who has done it in the past. This is a God who can do it in the present. We would be wise to remember these catalog examples of how God has been faithful in our own lives. So that in the moment that we're in where we need to draw on that faith, we can remember that God has been faithful in the past and he can be faithful in the present again whenever we need him. So this is all going through their minds, but they face this immense cost as they face this fiery furnace. We see that not only do you have to remain standing to be winsome sometimes, but you have to keep standing firm even in the face of such cost, even when it would be easier to just back down. What is the cost that we might face in our own culture? We don't have a furnace. We don't face life and death issues most of the time. In fact, it's rare. It would be exceptional for us in the United States to face some kind of a crisis that's of the magnitude of their own right here. But we also should not just dismiss it and say, oh, we don't face any kind of pressure. Take again this hot button issue of identity in our culture. What happens if the compliance team, like these certain Chaldeans come and they notice that we are not participating in embracing the, the latest ideology regarding human identity. What can happen? We can also be misrepresented, misunderstood. We can be labeled as hateful. Maybe we're labeled as people who are unsafe to be around. And maybe the fact that we do not embrace the self-determined identities of others means that surely we must not love these people, which is a tragedy. We are a people who welcome and who love all people, even if we do not agree with a self-determined ide ideology or self-determined identity. This is the way it might cost us. But these three men are facing a cost of life or death. Let's read about it. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. These are not on the screen. But the expression of his face was changed, and he has the furnace heated seven times over. Why? Isn't one time enough? And then he has some of the strongest men of his army bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it not enough for them to just be thrown in with their arms flailing? but he has them bound up. And as he does that, the men who are tossing in, these three men from Jerusalem, end up dying because the fire is so intense. We read in verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed these men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning furnace. This is the cost of their faithfulness, of standing firm, of remaining standing. This is the cost they paid. And the question that we are confronted with at this point, if the chapter ended right here, would God still be faithful? If the chapter ended right here, would God still be a deliverer? For many people around the world, today and throughout history. This is where the chapter ends. Open Doors Ministry is a ministry that tracks 
the persecution of Christians around the world. In this last year, most recent year, more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. Overall, 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That's one in seven Christians worldwide, including one in five believers in Africa, two in five in Asia, one in 15 in Latin America. Notice North America is not on there. We live in one of the most privileged spots imaginable. But we have brothers and sisters around the world who read this passage and can relate a lot more closely with these three men who are in the furnace. This is the reality that they're facing. But as we keep reading, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar calls them out of the furnace. And later on, it says that Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, and we automatically should say, "Uh uh-oh, watch out. He makes a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I tried to kill you. That didn't work out. So how about a promotion? That happened at the end of chapter two as well. I tried to kill Daniel and all of the wise men. That didn't work. So how about a promotion? This is a wild man who is impulsive with his emotions, just as impulsive with his actions. He's a volatile figure overall. And yet we see that in this empire in which Nebuchadnezzar has such power, such authority, his power is nothing in comparison with the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar has his people. He had the herald who announced his program early on in the chapter, commanding everyone when they hear the music to bow down and to worship. He has these certain Chaldeans from the compliance department who came in and reported to him on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we see that our God has his agents as well. Nebuchadnezzar's own understanding of this, which we should not put too much stake in, is that this is one of the sons of the gods. Babylon is a place of many gods, and Nebuchadnezzar knows that this isn't an ordinary human being who's with these three men who are now unbound and walking, strolling through the furnace. Then later, he calls him an angel or a messenger from God. We can't be too dogmatic about the identity of this actual fourth figure in the furnace with them, other than to say this is God's direct intervention through one of God's direct agents. God is with them in 
the furnace. Not only to be winsome do we remain standing when everyone else is falling down in worship. Not only do we continue to stand firm, even when it might cost us, but we have the confidence for all of those actions to live in the winsome way that we need to because we know that we never stand alone. A life that is winsome can be a life of great problems. It can be a life of suffering. It can be a life of tragedy. And we never seek out suffering. We never seek out difficulty. We never seek out tragedy. But when we are in the moment of facing tragedy, suffering, difficulty, we know that as we stand in faith, we never stand alone. We know that we have a God who goes with us into those moments. He may not rescue us from the moment. He didn't rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the moment. He could have extinguished the flames. He could have just caused an earthquake to suddenly demolish the furnace. He could have caused Nebuchadnezzar to just fall ill and die right on the spot. But he didn't do that. Instead, he met them in the furnace. We don't know what form God's deliverance might take in our own lives. His deliverance comes in different ways, different forms, and at different times. But we can trust that this is a God who will deliver us one way or the other. Our God is faithful to do it. And we see it demonstrated in the pages of Scripture over and over again. And because of Christ, because of what we just celebrated a few weeks ago with Easter, we know that we have the ultimate deliverance from God. Notice how these men did not have that assurance yet. They didn't yet know about Christ. They didn't know about his death and his resurrection like we do. So how much more hopeful can we be to know that God has delivered us from the ultimate furnace, the furnace of death? We can stand firm. We can stand in faith because we know we never stand alone. Isaiah 43 is one of the most beautiful passages to give us courage, to inspire our faith. And it says this, Thus now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We all face a certain cultural pressure. People in every age face it. It's different in different forms, different types, but everyone faces that pressure. Maybe that's one of your greatest struggles this morning. Or maybe a struggle is more of a personal nature. Maybe you're dealing with a health problem. Maybe you have a financial problem. Maybe you have a relationship problem. Whatever it might be, we can stand in faith knowing that we never stand alone. This is the same God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the God who said, behold, I am with you, even in the furnace, to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that informs us, that gives us hope, Lord, that 
recounts your amazing deeds, your faithful acts in the past. Father, I pray that these would be things that would be seared into our minds and in our hearts so that we, when we face our own challenge, when we face our own struggle, when we face our own trial, Lord, we would find the strength to draw from, to know God, You are the same God who has delivered in the past, and you are the same God who can be trusted to deliver in the present. Lord, I pray for the strength in the moment that we need it, the strength like these three men had as they faced their challenge. Lord, would you please give us that same strength in our own challenges and the own trials that we face? And Lord, may this all be for your glory as we trust in you, as we we choose to live different so that we might be winsome. We pray all of this by your grace and in the power of your name. Amen.